0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It brings me great pleasure to welcome to Stanford Jack Dorsey, who is, as you know, the co-founder and chairman of the board of Twitter and the co-founder and CEO of Square. Jack, welcome to Stanford. Thank you. Thank you for for having me. It's an honor to be here. I get a lot of my inspiration from walking around. And this is a gorgeous campus to walk around. And I've spent many hours walking around this campus, um, driving down here specifically, uh, just to do so because I was uh, not fortunate enough to go here. Um, I wanted to start with a story. Of entrepreneurship. My father, when he was 19 years old, uh, he was living in St. Louis, Missouri, and he was a pretty good cook. He knew how to make pizzas. And he had a best friend who also knew how to cook pretty well as well. So they decided to create a company together and to call it Two Nice Guys. And it was a pizza restaurant. And I think the main reason that they started this pizza restaurant is my dad is, uh, you know, fast, Saint, we're, we're from St. Louis, so there's a lot of meat, meat and potatoes. So it was a personal challenge to him to see how much meat he could get on one pizza, um, which he called the Tim's Special. Uh, and they started the restaurant. It started going very well, and they needed to hire some help. And they made one rule before hiring wait staff. They made, they made the rule, we will never date any of the wait staff. And the next person they hired was my mom. (laughs) My dad fell in love with this woman. Her name is Marsha, and went up to his best friend and said, I broke the rule, I have to quit, the company is yours, and I'm going to go marry marry this girl. And I was born 10 months later. Um, So that's where I got started. Uh, I got started in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, it's a very, very, it feels like a very, very small town. It's actually 5 million people, um, but a lot of it's spread around the metropolitan area. And my parents always stayed in the city. They never moved out to the suburbs. They were, they were true believers in the city, and, and St. Louis was one of the hardest-hit cities in America, um, apart from Detroit, in the great flight to the suburbs in the 40s and 50s and the 60s. So when I was growing up, I was surrounded by this urban atmosphere and I, I just loved it. My first love, I think, was the city and was walking around downtown St. Louis. And it was fairly desolate uh, when I was growing up, but it was still a joy and a wonder to me. Um, you had skyscrapers and you had all this hidden energy and just walking around you could feel something something different. And that sort of love and that obsession... Uh, was made most tangible by maps. I became obsessed by maps and looking at them. And I bought every Rand McNally and every single map that I could find, and I would put them in my room and hang them all over the walls and just look at them and wonder what was happening at this particular intersection or in this area or how to get down this road most efficiently. Um, And uh, my parents didn't know what to make of it, but uh, I, I loved it. And in 1984, 1985, we got the first Macintosh and an IBM PC Junior, and I really wanted to play more with maps. Um, I wanted to see them, I wanted to alter them more and do it on the computer screen. So I taught myself how to program because I wanted to learn how to draw a map on the screen. And then I accomplished that. And it was very, very basic and very simple. And then I put some dots on the map and then I learned how to move the dots around. And then the next challenge was to figure out how to keep the dots on the streets because they were kind of going all over the place. And then I had all these dots moving around this beautiful picture of this map, which represented downtown St. Louis and then later represented New York City, which, which I was amazed by. And the issue was that none of the dots had any meaning whatsoever. they were just random dots moving around this, this city. So my parents had a CB radio and they had a police scanner. And what was happening on the police scanner was really interesting because you had ambulances and fire trucks and police cars constantly reporting where they are and what they're doing. So I'm at Fifth and Broadway in New York City. I have a patient in cardiac arrest and we're going to St. John's Mercy. And I could take that information, type it up into a program, make some assumptions about speed and direction and what routes they're going to take, and actually watch the ambulance go to St. John's Mercy. And then I could hook up another ambulance, and then a taxi cab, a police car, a fire truck. And the more and more of this I did, the more I learned how to automate more of it, because the Internet was just coming up and we had gopher and St. Louis, Missouri has a school named Washington University, which was one of the first backbones for the Internet. So we had a pretty good connection through the BBS systems, the bulletin board systems back then. And I found all these open databases of this information. A lot of this was after the fact, uh, but it was still interesting to watch and to see unfold. So now I had this picture of real live data of a real live city operating in front of me. And I just thought it was the most beautiful thing ever, that I could visualize a city living and breathing. And I learned that this software had a name and it was called Dispatch. So I went to, uh, I went to college, I went to University of Missouri, Rolla initially, and I was deciding between political science at the time and computer science, because I've always been fascinated by cities and uh, at some point went to uh, maybe potentially go into government, still not quite sure if I would have more effect there or more effect in programming. Um, but I went away from political science because I realized that there are a lot of parallels between what you do um, in politics and what you do in government and in writing policy and laws and what you do in programming. But the difference is the time scale. So I could write a policy as a, you know, as a senator or as a mayor and I could see the effect maybe in eight years. But I could rate that same policy and write a simulator around it and write populations around it. And I could, see that, I could see that effect instantly with the computer. So I went down the computer science route. And all that time I was building this dispatch system because I was just fascinated by these cities and the visualizations. And I, um, I eventually found uh, the largest dispatch firm in the world through a lot of research. It was called DMS, it was in New York City, and they had a very, very simple website. It just had their logo and the company name. It had just gone public on NASDAQ. And I could not figure out how to contact this company. I really wanted to see what they were doing, and like actually I wanted to work for them. So I did, uh, they were running a very old version of Apache, uh, and there were some holes in Apache. So I found a hole in their web service, I discovered their corporate email list. I picked the email address for the CEO and the chairman, and I wrote an email that said, "My name is Jack Dorsey. You have a hole in your website. This is how to fix it. And by the way, I write dispatch software." Um, I was flown out a week later, and then got a job and transferred to NYU. Uh, so I was at that point. I was living the dream. I was living. I was. I was working at the biggest dispatch firm in the world, the biggest call center in the world. Um, and writing software to visualize New York City, which was, which was amazing to me. Um, and that is really where a lot of my focus has, has been on, is visualizing data, visualizing information, moving around in real time. And I took that concept and eventually in 2000 realized that I had this beautiful picture of the city, but it was all verticals. There were no people in it. Where are all the people in the city? And and that's when I started working on a very, very simple prototype based on some inspiration from Instant Messenger with the away status and also a service called LiveJournal, which was a very simple journal blogging application that allowed you to compose a blog post and it would go to a friend's page. And I also had the first Blackberry because I was still working in dispatch uh, at the time, it was called the RIM 850. And it was basically just an email pager. But what it allowed is I could be anywhere in the world, anywhere in the, in the city, and I could share what I was doing, and maybe I could also see what other people were doing. So I wrote some very simple software to receive an email from my BlackBerry and then send it out to an email list of some people I put on that list. Put some, some of my friends, some of my family on it. And I, I got that done in about a day, and then I went out to Golden Gate Park. And I went to the bison paddock. We, we do have live bison in San Francisco. If you haven't seen it, they're, they're awesome. Um, and I typed out an email that said, I'm at Golden Gate Park watching the bison. And it went out to my service and was broadcast out to all these people. And I immediately recognized two things. First, no one cared what I was doing. <laughs> and second, no one else had a Blackberry. Um, So I was alone in my sharing and also receiving, so I was getting no information back. So (laughs) wrong time, good idea. Put it on the shelf, uh, continued to contract around dispatch and got into a lot of lower level um, medical systems. And uh, if you ever take a boat to Alcatraz to go um, on the blue and gold fleet, I wrote the ticketing system for that. Um, So just random contract jobs until I discovered this company called Odeo which was uh, run by Evan Williams, and Biz Stone was uh, joining in a few months. And it was a consumer podcasting company. And I had never written a resume before. I had no interest in podcasting whatsoever. Um, But I was a really good programmer, and I wanted to understand the consumer side of the Internet. A lot of what I was doing was in the back end. And while it would touch my mom, and her life, it would be so in an indirect way. My mom may take, take a taxi cab uh, in, in New York City and may touch my software or buy a ticket to Alcatraz and may touch the software, but it wasn't direct. So I wanted to learn about being more direct in that interaction. So I went to work with Ev and Biz, and I quickly learned that no one else there enjoyed podcasting either. Um, so that was interesting. No one was, really, no one was really excited to build the product or build the tool, and they weren't consumers of the tool, so we weren't building something that we would love to use. Um, so it created an interesting situation which allowed for other ideas to bubble up. And in uh, late 2005, early 2006, we all kind of broke up into separate groups and we, we were given the assignment of come up with an idea of something you'd like to work on. And the first thing that came to my mind was this this idea uh, back in 2000, um, but now in 2005-2006, we had SMS. I could actually send an SMS message from uh, Singular to Verizon. And that, was, that was very, very new to the United States, and I was in love with the technology. It's, you know It degrades gracefully to every single device, even the cheapest devices, and it has this beautiful constraint of 160 characters and it doesn't really work all the time. Um, and it's really rough around the edges. I love stuff like that. So I brought up this idea, what if we could just use SMS, you could send what you're doing, it would go out in real time to all the people who are interested in hearing it, and then it would be archived on the web. You could also enter it from the web and it would be device agnostic, it would be a whole, a whole thing, it would be awesome. Um, and my two other people in the, in the park, we were on a playground, said it was a good idea and we presented it to the company and uh, Took about a week, but then the company finally got behind it, and we were—I was given two weeks, one other programmer, and Biz Stone to write the software, end end. And we did it. And at the end of that two weeks, uh, I wrote the first tweet, which was inviting coworkers. And then all the Odeo coworkers came on; they loved it. And little by little, we took from that company, and we brought them on the Twitter project until we spun it out as a separate company, and sold off Odeo. So that's how that sort of visualization and early desire to see the world led into Twitter, which is still a desire for me. Is to like Now we have more and more people using it all over the world, and it's even faster to see what's happening and what's unfolding in the world. But it really comes down to that curiosity about what's happening right now everywhere, and, and really being the pulse of what's happening right now everywhere. Being able to point to every single medium. In 2008, I stepped into the chairman role of Twitter, and there was an interesting thing that was happening. The entire market was crashing. Uh, So all of these financial abstractions that we had built up were suddenly being swept away. And there is no better time to start a company or a new idea than a depression or a recession, because a lot of the management teams were being asked to leave, uh, There's a lot of people who needed to get really creative to create something new. And there was an opening. And there was an opening particularly in payments. And at this time, I also reconnected with my first boss when I was 15 years old. His name is Jim McKelvey. And he is a glass artist. And he makes these beautiful pieces of glass. And we reconnected over Christmas. I normally go home for Christmas and visit my family. And we got to talking and you know, he wanted, to, uh, he wanted to build an electronic car company and I said, I have no idea how to do that, but it's an interesting idea. But let's keep talking. We, we should definitely work together on something. And then one day he called me up on his iPhone and I picked up my iPhone and he was frustrated because he just lost a sale of a $2,000 piece of glass that he had just made because the woman who wanted to pay him only had a credit card and he couldn't accept a credit card. And we we're both wondering... You know, you have this general purpose computer next to your ear. Why were you not able to make that sale? And we decided that he would come out and we would take a month. We would hire one other programmer to work on the client side and uh, build the hardware out. And I would build the server software and then answer that question. And in a month, we we built a very early prototype of what is now known as, as Square, which is a credit card reader that plugs into the audio jack of your iPhone or your Android or your iPad or anything that has an audio jack, we just need to write software for it. And the software and the hardware was really easy, and we got that done in about a month. I could actually swipe a card and generate electronic receipt via email and then send it out to a person. And I I love this because I would go around to um, all these angel investors and VCs and charge them $5 or $50 to show them my new idea. And uh, made $600 from that, by the way. Um, it was awesome. Uh, but a month later, after we had that prototype, um, Jim started visa- reading the, uh, the visa regulations. And he's like, wait a minute. This is against the rules. We can't do this. Um, and here we had built it all the software, we built the hardware and we had a greater understanding of the payments world coming from nowhere. Like I, have no understand- I had no understanding of the financial world before this moment. And we, uh, we decided to push through and show this to Visa and show this to MasterCard and show this to Amex. And the thing that really inspires people is a working product. When you're pitching someone, the best thing you can do is show them something that works. We did this with Twitter. We had a great number of users. We had a great number of masks. We had a lot of use cases. And we had investors who were coming to us who were already users of the product. Their families were users of the products. So the story became very, very easy to tell. And they could easily see why this was something that was powerful. So uh, Square was the same, but it was a little bit more tangible because I could actually take their credit card and take money off of it and then say, like, go to your, uh, you know, go to your Chase account right now and look because I just took $3 from your account, or in some cases $50 if I didn't really like the uh, VC. Um, But the interesting thing I realized along the way is that payments is another form of communication. It's another exchange of value. And the really interesting thing about payments in the financial world is no one's really designed it. If you think about it, every single person in this world has some connection to money and they all hate it. <laughs> at some point, or, the, at some point or, or another, you're going to hate some aspect of money. So there's never been anyone who's really designed a payments platform or an exchange of value or a currency that's really beautiful and that's really thoughtful and that engages uh, a user experience around communication instead of purely the the service of, and the mechanics of transferring that value. So when we were building Square, we, we realized that, wow, the receipt is something that's never really been designed or looked at. I go up to a coffee store, and I hand them my credit card. I say, I want a cappuccino. I hand them my credit card, and they type in cappuccino on their little terminal, which is basically a, calculator on top of a cash box, and then they get $3.24 from that, they get a receipt, then they take that amount and they go over and they type that amount into the credit card terminal, then they swipe the card, and then they get that receipt, and then they hand me that receipt, and I sign for that receipt, and then I give it back to them, and then they take that receipt, take the other receipt, staple it together with a little coffee card, and then give me all that, and I throw that paper away. (laughs) It's useless. And... It's, it would be so easy if you built a cohesive system to actually, and that carries the entire transaction to create a receipt that is useful. With one swipe, I can sign on an electronic screen, get rid of paper completely, but with that one swipe, I learn of the merchant's Twitter handle, I learn of their Facebook page, I learn of their Yelp account, I learn of their menu, their hours, whatever they want to put on their receipt, they can put there. But it can be used as a publishing medium and something that you can interact with instead of something that you just—it's a—it's a burden to—it's uh, a burden to receive. And a lot of a lot of retailers out there are embarrassed by the receipts they give out and the whole payment processing aspect of their business. They go above and beyond to craft a beautiful experience in their store, and they have to compromise to accept credit cards. They have to compromise to accept any form of payment. Why? And then what do they get out of it? If you go to any coffee store in America and you ask them, how many cappuccinos did you sell today, apart from Starbucks and Pete's? I don't know, we made $300. You know, How many cappuccinos did you sell, and then what percentage of those people bought biscottis? What happens when it's a rainy day? What happens on Tuesday at 5 p.m.? All this data we're used to for Google Analytics. You know, we've used this effectively to build our electronic systems and our blogs and, and uh, all of these companies that we're building. But real world offline merchants have none of this data. They can buy into it if they buy into a $15,000 point of sale system but then they also need to buy into an entire service army of people to figure out how to use it. So what we want to do is we want to build a full point-of-sale system that is just gorgeous and that allows and enables someone to immediately not just make the transaction fast and feel great, but to get very, very rich data for everything that they're selling, Google Analytics type of data for everything that they're selling. And and this becomes really, really important not just when you're starting a business, but when you're trying to grow that business. And this is true for every single startup and every single thing we do. And one of my greatest lessons that I learned in starting and running Twitter and starting and running Square, which is how important it is to instrument all usage. You have to instrument everything. For the first two years of Twitter's life, we were flying blind. We had no idea what was going on with the network. We had no idea what was going on with the system, with how people were using it. We were making guesses. We were basing everything on intuition instead of having a good balance between intuition and data. And we were going down all the time because of it, because we could not see what was happening. So the first thing I wrote for Square on the server was an admin dashboard. And we have a very, very strong discipline within the company, which is now 72 people, to log everything, to measure everything, and to test everything. And we treat the dashboard, we treat the analytics, we treat the data as a product. And we call it the inference team. And their job is to instrument all usage and infer all action. And that's something that we need, but it's also something that our users need. All that data is really, really interesting and it speaks to a market that's never really been addressed. 94% of commerce is still offline. Only 6% has moved online. So it's a massive, massive market, and they have no tools whatsoever. Um, so the, the data has been really important, but I think the, one of the biggest things um, that has helped me is learning how to become a better storyteller and the power of a story. And by this I mean if you want to build a product and you want to build a product that is relevant to folks, you need to put yourself in their shoes and you need to write a story from their side. So we spend a lot of time writing what's called user narratives of this user, or this person, is in the middle of Chicago, and they go to a coffee store in the middle of Chicago, and this is the, the experience they're going to have. It reads like a play. It's really, it's really, really beautiful. And if you do that story well, then all of the prioritization, all of the product, all of the design, and all the coordination that you need to do uh, with these products just falls out naturally because you can edit the story and everyone can relate to the story from all levels of the organization, engineers to operations, to support, to designers, to you know the business, the business side of the house. Um, so that story is very, very important for us. And really constantly considering the story and what new twists and elements we need to add to the story are a pretty big deal for us as well. And we want to tell an epic story. We want to solve a really big problem. We don't want to have a bunch of short stories strung together. We want one epic cohesive story that we tell the world. And and both both Twitter and Square are driving driving towards this goal. Um, so number two, good storytelling and writing stories for for the users. The third thing is as I see my role as CEO of Square, my role I think of it as an editorial function. And it's funny because um, Square, our headquarters, are actually in the San Francisco Chronicle building, uh, which the paper is not doing so well, so they're kind of moving out and we're moving in. And uh, we're also right next to uh, the United States Mint, so it's a very auspicious location for a payments company. Um, But by editorial, I mean there are a thousand things that we could be doing, but there's only one or two that are important. And all of these ideas and all of these stories from our users, from engineers, from support people, from designers, are going to constantly flood what, what we should be doing. And we need to choose the one or two that are really going to drive and sustain the network and the service and the product. And as an editor, I'm effectively just the chief editor of the company, as an editor, I'm constantly taking all of these inputs and deciding on that one or that intersection of a few that makes sense for what we're doing. And there's three access points that I pay attention to in particular. Number one is the team. We have to bring the best people in, edit the best people in, so we have a good cast of characters, and edit away any negative elements. And, and a lot of this is just like, you know the timing is off and you know our relationship does, just doesn't matter. So it just doesn't match. So in some cases, we have to ask people to leave or they, they leave on their own, but it's, it's always minding that team dynamic because at the end of the day, we're just a group of people working on one single goal. And if we can't step in a cohesive, coordinated fashion, then we're going to trip all over the place. And that's, that's a messy company and no one wants to use that. Number two... So recruiting is number one. Number two is internal and external communication. Internal communication is just the coordination around what we're doing and why we're doing it and what our goals are and why the goals are like that. That's it. If you have that sort of high level, this is where we're going, this is the vision, this is the next 30 days and three months and six months and a year maybe, uh, it makes it very, very easy to set priorities and for all the edges of the company to set their own priorities to do the right thing. And the external communication is the product. The product is the story we're telling the world. And we want to put everything through this. We don't want it to be about a person. We want it to be about how people are using it and what people, how people are fitting it into their lives and what they're doing with it. That's the strongest story we have. So number two is that internal and external communication. And number three is editing the money in the bank story. And this comes in two ways. It comes through investment and taking money from investors, either through swiping their credit cards um, while they're not looking, or through revenue. And fortunately, Square is a company that has revenue from day one. um, So we can look at constantly building that, and we don't have to worry about much investment but we can focus on that, that revenue piece. So my three priorities and my focus areas are in that order, and that's what I'm constantly editing as, as a CEO. Um, and I think it makes, it makes managing a growing company and a fast-paced movement very, very easy, um, because there's basically one thing that you have to do. You have to make every single detail perfect, and you have to limit the number of details. That's it. Every detail perfect, limit the number of details. If you can do that well, no matter where you are in the org structure, no matter where you are in the company or organization, you're going to succeed because you're paying attention to the smallest things. And if you pay attention to the smallest things while knowing what's important, then everything else takes care of itself. Um, so I've gotten a lot from, you know, from those those three things, and that's what's guided my career. And I'm always looking around. I'm always looking for, you know, that, that cohesive end to the story and how everything wraps back around. And as an example of this, I uh, I found recently, about three three or four months ago, that my father's pizza restaurant still exists. And I found out about it because it's, uh, there was this account on Twitter, and it was Pie Pizzeria, and they said, they tweeted, hey Jack, I think I bought your father's company, we're using Square to sell all of our pizzas. <laughs> which is awesome. So it just all loops back around. Um, and and that, that is the feeling, that is the moment that we're all building for. That's why we do what we do and why we work so hard to build what we want to see in the world is for moments like that. It's not for moments where I say, hey, mom, go down the street to this particular coffee store and you'll see you know, Square, this new thing that I'm working on. It's my mom texting me randomly, and she does it all the time, and, and saying, hey, Jack. I use Square at this random place that I just showed up at. That's, that's the magic moment. And, and it, it really reminds me of one of my favorite quotes of all time. I'm not really sure who said it, but it's in a, a Linda Berry novel called Cruddy. And I think it speaks very highly of what we all do as entrepreneurs and what we all do as creators and builders of things. Um, everyone in this room captures it perfectly. And the quote is, Expect the unexpected and whenever possible, be the unexpected. Expect the unexpected and whenever possible, be the unexpected. And I, uh, I try to live by that um, on a daily basis. So with that, um, I would love to open the floor to questions and spend the next 30 minutes talking about whatever you want to talk about. Jack, uh, the first question is actually from so, my name is Jesse Dusla, and I TA uh, the class uh, The Spirit of Entrepreneurship, MSNE 178, which um, we meet on Mondays to prep for this lecture, and then we meet on Wednesdays to debrief. So, for the first question, if someone from the class uh, has a question, wants to ask it. Wonder, and then if wonder, not. Wonder, uh, wonder, wonder. Oh, we got one. Yeah, so just in researching Square, I'm just curious what your marketing strategy is, is going forward, and I know you probably can't reveal all of that, but I heard about Vodafone's Payware and sort of similar products that are also being put out that don't have, tech, don't have hardware um, on iPhones and Androids and things like that. I'm just curious what your marketing strategy is going forward, given the idea that this market is it's growing and more people are trying to yeah. add products. Well, I think, um, so number one, one, the marketing strategy. We have not, we've not done any marketing whatsoever yeah. just yet. Um, so a lot of it has been word of mouth, and what we discovered from that, and by the way, starting a startup after Twitter is so much easier than before because you have an amazing way not just to promote the product, but you get instant feedback of what people are feeling about it and, and what, they, what they like and they dislike, um, and you can react very quickly to that. But um, what we're trying to do now is identify the key influencers in those merchant areas, and make them distribution points. So for instance, there's 5,000 taco trucks in Los Angeles, and 300 people a day go to each one of those. And 10 to 30% of those people have their own small business. And this is not just small businesses. This is individual services, like teaching piano, or cutting someone's grass, or a hairstylist. So doesn't make sense to ship 200 squares to, um, these taco trucks, these 5,000 taco trucks, and allow them to give this away for free or with the purchase of a taco. We, th- we think it does. So, um, and then people discover, well, this is interesting, but how can I use it? And then suddenly I need to sell my MacBook Air on Craigslist and I can take the person's credit card instead of having them bring $1,200 to me um, or, or whatever I'm selling it for. So that's how we're thinking about it right now a lot of what a lot of the way I think about marketing is through the product itself, so I think the marketing function, the best aspect and the best it can do is surface the product as much as possible and and to do that we 're doing this taco truck thing and we 're also you know purchasing Facebook ads and Google ads and doing the standard thing and looking into uh, um, you know print media and uh, you know the the union of accountants, because they might be influencers, and they're trade magazines, Um, so it surfaces the product. And then the product takes over. So if the product is is built in in a beautiful way, it just inspires people, hopefully, to take action. We have about three to five seconds to inspire someone to take action to actually get Square. And then we have about a week to get them to participate more, and that's by taking a transaction and it's not just a. A lot of our users are not just accepting credit cards, but they're also accepting cash. And we we realized with a receipt that you know it's great that we're sending electronic receipts via email and SMS for credit card payments, but a lot of people still still pay with cash. So why can't we offer those receipts for cash as well? So then we're like, oh, well, we can be payment device agnostic. We don't have to we don't have to worry about that. Um, so. We have about a week to get them to participate more and then about a month to, to get them to be users forever more. Um, so that's the, the, the phasing that we think about. In terms of other competitors, the magical thing about Square is not just the hardware, that it's so small and it's free. and you know, The app is free and the hardware is free and there's no setup costs and all these other things. But typically when you go to accept credit cards, you have to get a merchant account, what's called a merchant account, which is a relationship with a bank which has all these setup fees. It has monthly minimums. It has a monthly fee. It has a one- to two-year contract. And then they tell you that you're going to be paying 1.79% to accept credit cards. And there's a little asterisk next to it. And the little asterisk goes to for qualified cards only, which represent a very, very small amount of the cards actually used. So the merchants are actually paying 3 to 3.5% and $0.50 on every single transaction. They have no idea they're doing that until the end of the month when they get the merchant statement and the bank comes in and takes the money out. And if they don't have enough money in, then they get an overdraft fee. It's a mess. It's a mess. And it's, it's, uh, it's almost criminal. So we're, we're changing all that. We're making it a lot more transparent. We're not just focused on the hardware. Um, so the difference between us and, and those other competitors that you named is that we're focused on the software. We think the software experience is what can be beautiful. We think all of the data, Around the transaction is really, really interesting, um, and something that we can do a lot with. A lot, something our users can do a lot with, something their users, who the payers, can do a lot with, and something we can do a lot with. Any plans pertaining to to merchants like Whole and stuff? Yes. <laughs> so the question is: Do you have any plans to go to larger? Retail institutions. Um, I, I really like building utilities. I like building utilities that scale from individual use all the way up to a larger use. And you see this with Twitter, with people using it to talk about what they're having for breakfast, which is something that I do, and it's, it's meaningless to 99.99999% of the people in the world but it's extremely meaningful to my mother. Um, so it's, it's a good use case. Uh, and you have businesses using it. You have governments using it. Um, and we see Square in the same way. You can use it to you know, get your rent money or to tutor someone and get paid for that um, or sell something on Craigslist. But you can also use it in a retail environment. And we have retailers in New York City who have multiple iPod Touches and now they're just replicating the Apple Store and the Apple Store experience. They're bringing the point of purchase to the decision. So they don't have anyone lining up behind a cash register. And again, the experience feels awesome. The more you can minimize, and, and that's the other thing about utilities, is the more you can minimize the thinking around the mechanics in, 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 the, in the moment, then more people are going to use it and more people are going to feel good about it. And in Square's case, it's really focused on we want to get you to the value of what you're actually intending to purchase or the service that you're intending to purchase and get all the mechanics of the payments out of the way. You can go home with the receipt and then you can interact with it there if you want, but you came for a cappuccino, you should get a cappuccino. You shouldn't have to worry about you know, taking out your credit card and doing all this all this mess and like having to now do something with three pieces of paper that you have no use for. Um, so yes, we are very interested in the retail merchants um, and the larger merchants. The thing about the larger merchants is they're very stubborn, and they have a lot, of, they have a lot invested in their systems, and they're very, uh, very stubborn to change. Um, so our thinking around that is we're going to build an API, we're going to introduce them to it, we're going to see what works, we're going to be focused entirely on payments, We'll fit in when it makes sense, and then we disappear when they have to go back to their system. But we don't want to build inventory systems or anything like that. Yeah? If I have a way to uh, let you break into those fake accounts, uh, like Safeway? how could we connect? What's that? How could we connect? How? You and I personally? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, give you a, I'll give you my email address afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Am I choosing random people or? Yeah, whatever you want. Okay. Um, you said that along your journey you had to become a better storyteller, and I would argue that you've become really good at it um, through here and through seeing some interviews. I just wanted you to tell us a little bit more about how you learned to become a very good storyteller. Uh that's a great question. I uh the the biggest the biggest thing for me on that on that path is I need to I need to draw something out, and I need to get it out of my head. I found myself very early on thinking about something like you know, thinking about this, this early idea for Twitter, and saying to myself, "I could build this awesome you know, you, you have those like, shower moments or you're walking at midnight in some town in New York City, and you've got these amazing brain ideas. And, and then you start thinking, well, I could really start doing this if only X, and if I had this person, or if this technology existed or if this happened or this happened, and what I what I realized I was doing is I constantly making excuses for not working on it. And then the window had passed, and then I couldn't do anything. So I think it's really, really important um, to write it out, or to draw it out, or to code it. Um, but you need to get it out of your head. And the reason you have to get it out of your head is you need to be able to see it on a surface that is not in your mind. and once you can see it and once you can step back from it, then you can also decide, uh, this, is, you know, this passes my filter, passes my you know, constraints, so maybe I can show it and share it with some other people. And then they'll be like, uh, you know, that's the stupidest idea ever. And, or you know, that's somewhat interesting, um, but maybe this and this and this. Um, so the sooner you can do that, then you have a lot of momentum around it and you can you know, really decide if you want to commit to it and work on it more or put it on the shelf for a later date. And the realization that I think everyone needs to have about that latter option, putting it on the shelf, is that you can come back to it. And it'll, it'll surface back up in another piece of work or another idea at some point in your life. So you know, having that, having that ability to close off a chapter and move on is really, really important. You can't have all these open threads. And, and that's what I realized I was doing <coughs> And, and that also encouraged me to to really write more, and to really think about you know what is what is the story? What, how are people coming to this? And like when I show my friends this, how are they going to react? And I would write it down. I, I would actually treat it like a play. Uh, and, and and when I realized that I was writing plays, I wrote I read a lot more plays, um, for style and for substance and for technique and. Um, I think it's you know I think it's I think it's really good and I think there's another company that I've always looked towards for um, inspiration and uh, I know a number of people in this room probably have uh, a, this similar company in mind which is Apple. Um, Apple I think is run like a theater company. Uh, it has a great sense of pacing, has a great sense of story, and has a great sense of execution, and it's all about. It's all event driven. It's all stage driven. The stage being a billboard, or the stage being a keynote, or the stage being a product launch. Um, all of it has a very, very cohesive end to end story. I mean, you think about what happened when Steve Jobs came back to the company. The first thing he did is he killed every product line the company was working on. And for two, two years, they had no product on the market whatsoever. All they had were a bunch of posters all around the world with Steve's Heroes. And it said, think different. And it was just focused on bringing up the brand and making people aware of the brand again and how the brand is aligning to this particular feeling and story. And then they came out with the iMac and then you know, built, built iTunes and then the iPod. And they realized that, wait a minute, people are carrying music on their phones now, so we better build a phone, build an iPhone. and So this, this unfolding, of the plot and the epic story is, has been very, very interesting to watch, especially if you look back you know, to that, that time when he came back uh, to the company. So I've learned a lot from that company um, and other companies who operate in a similar fashion. Hi. Thank you so much. I actually was really appreciating the fact that you shared the story of how you started from, from childhood. Um, and also cool to know that I'm not the only one who has ideas in New York City, so <laughs> which I don't have in San Francisco for some reason. So I, I'm really curious about this merchant accounts that you were talking about before. I mean, are you basically an acqu- becoming an acquiring bank? How are you giving merchant accounts to people? We're, um, we're doing some interesting things. Um, we, uh, we are an aggregator, um, and there was another company that – was an aggregator before us, and that was PayPal. And we learned a lot from PayPal, and PayPal kind of paved the way for what we're doing, and it made a lot easier for what we're doing. And the other thing that made uh, things easier for us is I hired uh, Keith uh, Raboy, who was um, working at PayPal in the early days, and he was the one that went to Capitol Hill and and lobbied against um, these other organizations that were trying to shut PayPal down. And he's now our COO, so he has a good understanding of how to get through a lot of these complexities. But when we first saw the merchant account, it was funny because we, uh, we actually went to, um, we built the software and then we needed the payment back end, and we were like, how do we get a merchant account? It is a nightmare to figure out how to get one of these things these days. Um, we went to rockbottommerchantaccounts.com <laughs> and we signed up for a merchant account as a glass artist and we said we were selling glass and we created a company to do it. It's called uh, JDJM, which are the initials of my co-founder and I. And we, um, we were passed off to this other organization with a queue, and they told us a different price, and then we were passed off to another organization, and they had an, another different price and another infrastructure, and it was just a mess. But it was so inspiring to see that because we're like, we can simplify this. There is no reason that this needs to exist in the world. And that goes back to that editorial. Is like it's like it's not what we can build, it's what we can take away. All the things that we can take away from this world are going to be the things that drive adoption. We we're going to our partners and we we're showing this to all these financial institutions and we're like, we're giving this away for free. We're giving the software away for free we are not going to have any sort of merchant account. We're not going to have any monthly fees or any of those things. And, and the first thing they said to us, literally, was you're being really stupid. You're leaving money on the table. People are used to paying for these things. And what we said, well, that's probably why you only have 7 million people processing credit cards with you today. We can bring that number way, way up, um, and we can enable everyone to accept the form of payment that every single person in this country is carrying around in their pocket, from a credit card to a debit card to a gift card to a prepaid card. Everyone knows exactly what this is and how to use it. So we don't need to train the users with a new user behavior. They can use what they know. They can use the devices that they have in their pockets today, the tools, the simple tools that they have in their pockets to do everything they need to do. Uh, It doesn't require anything from the payer side. So the merchant account was, was the first to go, and we're the only one that doesn't require a merchant account. And the way we've set that up structurally is we have to work with an acquiring bank. We have an acquiring bank, and we pass through. And you know, we don't want to be a bank, because if we're a bank, then we're under all this regulation, and suddenly people from the government are asking for our seven-year plan, and you know, it's hard enough coming up with a 30-day plan for a startup. So... Um, We uh, we want to resist that for as long as possible. I get someone from the back, the red shirt. I guess there's a lot of red shirts in there. Yeah. Um, My question is: Is Square's Square's goal to make credit cards easier to use, or do you actually eventually want to get rid of them and are aiming for something much bigger than facilitating credit card use? Um, So the question is, uh, is Square's goal just to make credit cards easier to use, or do you want to get rid of them and go after something bigger? We want to make payments feel amazing. We want to make this exchange of value feel awesome. And right now, everyone in this country is using this plastic device. And the easiest thing for us to do is build this other plastic device that accepts this plastic device and then brings it into the software. And then we have a software experience around it. So, we want to make that feel great and we want to make, you know, people accounting for cash feel feel great as well. But at the end of the day, you know, we want to constantly iterate that experience. So we don't know what that looks like in the future. There's a lot of talk around NFC, which is near field communication and what that means. NFC by its very nature, is just identity. It's just identity and authentication. You can tie payments to it. You can tie walking up to your car and unlocking to it. You can tie the same thing to your house and whatnot. Or you can tie like transactions to it. But the thing about it is it makes the transaction easier. So if there's a mass of technology that makes the transaction easier than this, which everyone knows how to use, then we will accept that. We will use that. Um, but we, we, are not, we are not just focused on accepting credit cards. We're focused on the payment experience and all the information and all the, the platform around payments. And when you really consider it and you really consider the potential of actually being able to carry the transaction end to end, then there's a massive amount of things that you can do with it. One swipe and you can suddenly check in to Foursquare if you have that option turned on. You know, the, uh, I'm sure many of you have been to the malls where you get those little buzzers and you know they call you back to the counter when your food is ready. Why do you have to do that when you can swipe, you put in your phone number for a receipt if you've already used Square before it remembers that? They can just send you a text message when you need to go back to the counter. So there's a ton of stuff we can build hooked off the transaction that's really, really interesting and has never really been done before in a cohesive way, where people are building the hardware and and the software, um, and and that's what we're focused on is is building that cohesive story end end. Uh, with the rapid growth of uh, Square, how are you actually keeping up the company keeping the company PCI compliant, especially with all the wireless transmission of the data which contains credit card? And since there's a second part question to that. Um, no merchant account, that's fine, but what about Clearinghouse? How does that work? Yeah. So the, so the question—the questions are, um, with the rapid growth of Square, how are you keeping the company PCI compliant, which is a compliance we have to go under as a financial institution? And then uh, without the merchant account, how are you doing the Clearinghouse, which is called a um, – you all know it as a direct deposit. It's also called ACH. So um, PCI compliance is, is very interesting. You have all these auditors come in, and they – and they, uh, you know, audit your lines of code and your practices, and uh, you know the cryptography you use and everything. So we encrypt as soon as it comes off um, the reader, and it's encrypted with our server's public key. It's sent up through encrypted channels, and then it's uh, decrypted and then sent off to the processors and the banks and the whole chain of the credit card industry, which is um, which would take another hour to describe. Um, but the way that we've made sure that we're always compliant is we do a lot of uh, what's called pair programming in Square. So we have two people at one computer, two keyboards, two mice, and you have two people working on the same problem. You have two lo- two eyes on every line of code, which happens to be one of the requirements for uh, PCI compliance, but something we just do naturally. So we have a lot of folks who know exactly what's happening in the system who can encourage best practices. So we've been able to, we were the fastest through our PCI audit that our auditor ever went through. Um, And the other thing that's happening with PCI is it's evolving very, very quickly. PCI was not written for mobile, and it has to be rewritten for mobile. So everything's kind of in a gray area right now. And um, you know there's going to be a lot of changes, and I think Square is going to inform a lot of those changes, because I, I believe that a lot of our practices, our security practices and our safety practices are better than what PCI mandates. You know, we're, we're engineers, and we want to we engineer a, a precise and safe and secure system from end to end. It goes back to that detail point. We want every single detail to be perfect. and a lot of these, uh, a lot of these committees and, and auditors uh, don't have the same, same sorts of ideas. Um, on the clearinghouse side, uh, so what he means by that is I can accept a credit card, but how do I get the money? So you get the money by you, you download the application, you put in your address, we send you a square in two to three days for free, and then you take someone's money, you take $50 from them, and now you need to get the money out. So what you do is you go to the bottom of a checkbook, um, or on your, your online banking and you get the routing number and the account number, and you put in your bank account information, we send a test transaction, uh, which is you know, two microtransactions, and then you verify that that's actually yours, and then we start funneling the money to you every single night. So the Clearinghouse function is we're just telling all the money goes into a bank account, which is owned by our acquiring bank, and then when we have the information, we tell that bank to send this amount to this bank account, which is the bank account that you put in. So that means that we don't have to be under the same regulations that the banks do. They can handle all that. We don't have uh, a need for any money transfer license because we're not crossing state lines, the bank is. We're just telling the bank to send this money from A to B, and that's it. So that's how it technically works. Uh, you talked about two major pain points that you managed to solve through your solutions, one of them real-time communication and the other one um, payment processing and really customer relationship management. Are there any other pain points, pain points that you know of but don't really have time to solve that you know, we might have actually time to solve? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, there's a lot of pain points in the company, so we'd love to come to have you join the company. Um, the... Uh, yeah, there, there's there's going to be there's going to be a lot. I I, I think of Square as a platform that's going to um, you know build an ecosystem around it, uh, and we're going to be very very good about releasing strong and clear APIs on how to build things, um, and you know the the best thing that you can do is hook something off that payment, um, and a real time hook off that payment. Goes back to that sort of visualization. I would just love to see a visualization of all the commerce happening in the world right now. And can you imagine uh, a, a visualization of like money flowing from one place to another place and like you know what that looks like? That's that's awesome. Um, so I'd love to see projects like that. And we're certainly not going to think about all of them, um, but we are going to think about a lot of them. Um, and we are going to do a lot. The company right now is already doing about eight different things, um, and we have to coordinate all those eight different things into one thing. We're building hardware, we're fulfilling hardware, we're building a payment network that can't go down, because if we go down, we lose money for one of our users. Um, it's not just 140 characters, it's potentially $140, because they can't make the sale. We're building a risk and fraud function, we're building support, and then we're building a web service and a client. So there's a lot going on, and there's going to be even more. So I think of Square as a startup with many startups inside of it, and that's that's how we're organizing the company internally. So we're going to have a lot of different projects, and they'll be coordinated by this one this one cohesive unit um, uh, outside. Jack, with that, we have to call the um, the event to a close. The Business Association of Stanford on behalf of DFJ and Basis, I want to thank you for your talk today and give you this trophy. Thank you very much. Thank you.